Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. This is episode 113. The title of the podcast is A Practical Perspective on Decision Making. One of the most important things you will ever learn is how to make a biblical decision. Have you thought about that? Every day, I started to say today, but that is true. Today and every other day, you make thousands of decisions and the overwhelming majority of those decisions you don't think about because they are now subtle, subliminal. They run in the background. You are habituated. You have created habits and habits are a great thing Habits allow you to do other things. Have you ever driven to work or driven to a location, taking your child to school or something like that, and you got there and you don't remember how you got there. You don't remember the process because you have done it so many times. Now, I know that sounds scary on the surface because you don't remember how you got there, but it is really a good thing because you don't want to remember every intersection and every house you pass and every other structure. You're paying attention to the road and you're not paying attention to peripheral things because you have done it so many times. It is your habit and it is a good thing, but you can also have bad habits and it's by the same process. You have done it, whatever it is, so many times, and it's just what you do. Something triggers, and you immediately react and respond in an unbiblical way. That's why you want to know how to make good decisions for the little and small things. So in this podcast, episode 113, I have a lot of information here that I want to provide for you, and if you want to take advantage of all of it, just go to episode 13 a practical perspective on decision-making. You have this audio, this podcast, but I also have show notes. And in those show notes, I have a, a short video, about 90 seconds, something like that, that you can watch that gets at this idea. I also have a slide that, that I want to walk through, an infographic that helps explain how to make a biblical decision. I have a webinar that you can watch, our supporting membership webinar. It's a one-hour webinar on biblical decision-making where I do a deep dive. And if you are a supporting member, you can watch that webinar. And then there's a 2,000-word long-form article that you can read as well. What I'm saying here is there's a lot of Content in addition to the show notes, and so go to episode 13, 113. I'm sorry, a practical perspective on decision making because I want you to have this information because it is so important. When an individual shows up in a counseling context, which I have been doing for a long time, they come here because of decisions that they have made. And if they're coming to counseling, there are probably quite a few of bad decisions that they have made. And it's just important for them to know how to make right decisions. One of the most important things you'll ever learn is how to make a biblical decision. So this training is practical, it's relevant to how to live your life today because it applies to any decision you will 
have to make whether what you're deciding is a big thing, and we do have quite a few major decisions in our life, but as I said, also to help you make decisions in the little things, because you want to make the right decision the first time and then become habituated in that right decision, and then you just do it. And you'll be helped and encouraged by this practical training. So if you can, you have time, go to rickthomas.net, look for episode 113, and you can get all of these resources. If you can't, well, listen to this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. This is Life Over Coffee, where I tackle questions, problems, issues. And if you have something that you want me to tackle in a podcast in our Life Over Coffee series, just send me a note, ask me, lay it out, whatever your question is and you can flatten it out if you want to and leave out names and personal information and that's fine don't have to reveal that but it's more about what you're asking and getting you the help that you need if you want to talk to us we do have a 24 7 shop and so you can come to our sanctification center in the sky rickthomas.net is the url we have a team, and again, it is 24-7. We, we do not close. We answer questions every day, 365 days out of the year. And so if you have something pertaining to life and godliness, a relational situation, a challenging difficulty that you're going through, and you just want some guidance, we can't fix your problem because that's not what we do. God is the fixer, but we can water and plant give direction, offer some advice, and we would love to do that. So go on our website and look for our forums, free forums for those that aren't supporting members. For those of you who are supporting members, thank you for that. You're the ones that make it go. You are the people that underwrite this ministry, and you don't know it fully, but you bless a lot of people. God is blessing and encouraging a lot of people through you. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of people that God is encouraging because of your support. So thank you for that. You can jump on the private forum and ask your question. The primary text that I will be using in this podcast is Romans 14, 23. There are two sentences in that verse of scripture. I'm going to use the second uh, sentence. Paul said, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, meaning as soon as you take that step, you must take that step in faith. If you do not proceed, if you do not take that step and all the succeeding steps in faith, Paul said, it is sin. That is why I asked this question in premarital counseling. One of the most important questions, I, well, let me step that back a moment. The most important question you'll ask in premarital counseling is, are you in faith to make this decision? Faith is, let's use some synonyms. Do you believe this is the right thing to do? Belief, faith, those are synonyms. Are, are you confident, as in God confident? Do you, are, are, you, are you God confidently assured that this is what you want to do? Are you trusting that this is the right decision? There's four synonyms there. Faith, belief, trust, a God-centered confidence. And the reason I ask that question is because I know what they may think they know, but what I know is that after they proceed into their marriage in six days, six weeks, six months, six years, whatever it may be, their marriage is not going to be all that they thought it 
all they hoped it would be. They're going to have many disappointments. Things are, are going to fall apart. I'm not trying to be critical here. I'm just being a, a realist. And for those of you who are married, you know what I'm talking about. You don't get everything that you want, plus the fact that, well, we, we're dying. Things fall apart. Things break down. I mean, it could be physical. There could be job refer- reversals, financial issues, all kinds of relational con. con- uh, conflict, <laughs> and then you have children. And one thing that you want to bank on is that you believe, you believe God has called you to be married. When everything else is wiped off the table, you want this one thing standing strong. I believe God wanted us to get married. Think about all the characters in the Bible. Joseph, for example, you can see, you can feel his belief in 5020 of Genesis where he gave us that sovereign sovereign clarity perspective on his problems that he had in his most recent past. And the thing that governed him through those problems is he believed God was in his mess. And you want to believe that God is in your mess because it is faith in something out of your outside of yourself, bigger, stronger than you are. It is faith that Uh, buoys you during those difficult times, seasons of your life. And so Paul said, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so I asked that question, are you too in faith to get married? Now, I know that (laughs) they're going to say yes, and and they are, but they really don't understand the fuller implications of what it means to be in faith to get married. But It will be tested in their future. Now, I don't expect them to know the fuller implications of what it's like because you can't know what you don't know, and you won't know it until you experience it. But I want to get that out on the table, and I want to make sure in premarried counseling and then all the follow-up interactions I have with them over the next 60 years, I want to keep coming back to that. And I want to keep reorienting their minds around this idea of faith for the process. And so I asked that question. But, and then Paul says, you, you better not get married for any other reason as the most important reason. There could be secondary reasons, tertiary reasons. He's good looking. She's drop dead gorgeous. I mean, she's beautiful. Uh, uh, you know, we compliment each other and all that stuff that we like to say. Those are good reasons. They're not bad, but they cannot be the primary reason. And so are you in faith to make the decision that you are about to make? Because here's the thing. That decision will not turn out the way that you hoped it will. I mean, it may be fantastic, but there's going to be pitfalls. Uh, There's going to be things that will go sideways all along the way. That's just what it's like to be a fallen person living with fallen people in a fallen world. And so when you make a decision, I like to talk about it this way. Decision-making is a four-legged decision-making process. There are four legs on that stool of faith. So faith is the seat but it's held up by four legs, which is the process for making a decision. Those four legs are, they all start with the letter C for clarity's sake, canon, community, conscience, and comforter. Those are the four C's of biblical decision-making, and I like that because they balance each other out. The canon is the Word of God, as you know. Canon means rule. It's like a straight edge. It's the rule Uh, It gives us the uh, 
black and white guidance that we need. It's, it's the absolute. It's our authority. It's our all-sufficient, infallible, unerring, all-sufficient rule that we abide by. And so you have the Bible. Of course, there's two issues here that you want to caveat. One of those is the Bible does not answer all of our questions in life. Should I buy this house or that house, marry this person or that person, this church, that church, this job, that job? It doesn't get into that granular detail. And so you need a you need some counterbalancing to help answer questions. It's not saying that the Bible's insufficient, it's not. But if the Bible answered, well, actually it would be right for it to answer every question that you had because the problem then becomes a faith issue. There's no faith involved. If the Bible was the world's largest book, which I couldn't even imagine how big it would have to be to answer every detail of your life and the other 7 billion people on earth and all the details of their lives, then what we would have is a code book that answers all of our questions and we wouldn't need to live by faith. That's what you do with robots. You just punch in the data and, and they do what you punch in. But it is an all-sufficient book, but it's not going to answer on a granular level some of the day-to-day decisions that you have. The other issue is that we're all subjective. Nobody is an objective being, and so everybody steps into the text subjectively, meaning we bring our presuppositions, our interpretations, our biases into a text, and, and we see that all the time. You know people, whether close to you that you know personally or people in the greater swath of Christendom that make decisions that, quite frankly, aren't biblical. The Bible would not support, but they read the Bible and they base it on the Bible. And so the Bible can be misinterpreted. And that's why you want this balancing act where you have Uh, other things that are part of the decision-making process, and that's where the community comes into play. You want competent and courageous and compassionate friends. I'm sticking with the C's here. You want competent friends who are theologically sound. They understand the Bible. They'll come alongside you and give you good answers. You also want courageous friends because They're not going to rubber stamp you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, the Bible says. And so you want a friend that just won't rubber stamp what you are thinking, but they have courage. And that's why I also added compassion, because you don't want them to be harsh or unkind to you. You want them to be courageous, but you want them to be compassionate in how they communicate to you. Now you have the Word of God and you have a confident friend or maybe more than one friend who can come. Now that's bringing balance to the force right there. And then you have the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who eliminates our mind. Jesus left to give us the Spirit, Jesus said, to guide you in all truth. You remember the Ethiopian in Acts 8. He was sitting in the chariot and reading Isaiah 53, but he didn't know what he was reading. Well, his friend, community, stepped up into the chariot. It was Philip in this case, and Philip helped him. We also have the Holy Spirit who illuminates and sheds light on the situation, pun intended. And so what does the Spirit of God say? So now we have the canon, God's word. We have the community, a competent compassionate, courageous friend. We have the comforter, 
I'm not putting them in order of priority, by the way. It's just how it's listed in my show notes that I'm reading to you. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is more important, more significant. And so we have the Bible, the Spirit, we have friends. And then then lastly, number four, you have your conscience, your, your, your own inner voice speaking to you. God gives every person a conscience that conscience is how you would break it down, which in the Latin means co-knowledge. It's a co-knowledge. It's an inner voice that God gives to all humans, saved or lost. In Romans chapter 2, 14 and 15, Paul said that the Gentiles who do not have the Bible, do not have the law, do the things contained in the law, their conscience is bearing them witness to where they accuse and excuse each other. And so you have your conscience. Now, when you put all four of those things together, now, all four of those separately could be a, a mess. You know, I already talked about the Word of God being misinterpreted wrongly. I also talked about, or interpreted wrongly. I also talked about the Spirit, uh, the Spirit of God, let me add. We have some folks who, you know, they're so Spirit-driven, but they're not tied to the Word of God. They're highly subjective people that come from that emotional, Spirit-centered background. The Bible doesn't support it. It does support the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of pneumatology and and the Spirit guiding us in all truth, but it's also derived from Scripture, and some people can be so Spirit-driven that their decisions, they're not, they're not based on God's Word. And then you can have the community, which can be wacko. You can have friends that are just, quite frankly, unhelpful, not competent, courageous, or compassionate. And then your conscience, your conscience can be shaped by all kinds of things that can distort how you make decisions, which is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 8 with these meat eaters, these Jewish people who were regenerated by the power of the gospel and they came into Christianity, but they were afraid to eat meat, sacrifice the idols because their conscience was shaped. And when it comes to your conscience, your inner voice There are many shaping influences, like Adam, for example, our Adamic natures. We come into the world totally depraved, meaning that we are broken through and through. Not just physically, we're dying daily physically, but spiritually also, including our minds, how we think we're totally depraved. It doesn't mean that we have done every possible wicked thing or that we will do every possible wicked thing known to man, but it does mean we're capable of it because we're totally depraved. But in addition to our total depravity, we are uniquely depraved. Every person is different. We come into the world differently. If you have multiple children, you know this, that think they think differently, process differently. And so Adam shapes us, and it's important to know that we could potentially be wrong, and that's why we want to bring in these other factors in addition to our conscience. We want the community, the Spirit of God, the Comforter, and the canon, God's Word. Our parents shape us and other primary authority figures in our life. They have a significant shaping influence over us. And then our peers, other individuals, other people who have come around us all of our lives do influence us. Perhaps folks that you went to school with. Maybe you're in school now and you're being intimidated or you're caving to peer pressure, which the Bible would call the fear of man. But it can shape how you think and the decisions that you make. 
then our culture shapes us as well. The millennial culture is shaped differently from my culture. I can see that because I come from certain biases in my culture. Some of them may be right, some of them may be wrong, but I can see how the millennials process things and they process things differently than I do because they have been shaped culturally. Religion is another major influence that will shape your conscience, your inner voice. That could be good or bad religion. It would be great if it was good religion and it could really facilitate what you're trying to do in decision making. But then bad religion like legalism, touch not, taste not, handle not kind of culture. It's a fear-based culture that lives by rules primarily and externalities. They may believe for by grace you are saved, but oh my. Uh, there's a lot of externality pressure, and it can really influence you in a poorer way as far as how you make your decisions. And so your conscience, even though it is your inner voice and your conscience should guide you in all truth, sometimes it, it doesn't because of these shaping influences. And not only that, your conscience is moldable. I already talked about this in 1 Corinthians 8, where the Jewish people who were regenerated by God came into Christianity, and they have weak consciences. Their conscience is moldable. It can be shaped. Your conscience is your highest level of morality. Think about that statement for a moment. You can't sin against your conscience. Your conscience is a higher level of morality than the Bible. And that's what Paul was saying, implying in 1 Corinthians 8, that your conscience, those, Jew, those Christians, those new Christians... Their conscience was a higher level of morality than the Bible. And that's why he said that, you know, you, you know better. You have knowledge, but don't be arrogant in your knowledge. Love builds up. You want to be careful with these people because you don't want them to sin against their consciences. And so what you want to do with a person with a, a morality that is not bibliocentric is you want to begin to help them. You want to love them into a biblically informed conscience. But not only can your conscience be soft or weak, your conscience can also harden. You can become dull by the decisions that you make. And if your conscience becomes dull, well, you're not going to be able to, you're going to be desensitized to the truth and you're not going to be able to make clear headed decisions. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 5, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained, powers of discernment trained by constant practice, to distinguish good for e from evil, but they have become dull and they can't distinguish good from evil. You do not want a desensitized conscience. You see this idea also in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, where Paul told Timothy that the Spirit says in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And so we know that the conscience is moldable, and this is a huge thing when it comes to decision-making. The four-legged stool that gives you faith to proceed, 
the canon, God's Word, the Comforter, God's Spirit, the community, God's people, and your conscience. And if you harden your conscience, you become dull of hearing through poor decision-making practices, or you have an oversensitive conscience because of whatever has happened to you through those shaping influences I mentioned earlier, and also poor decisions that you have made, it's going to be really hard. It's going to really be hard to discern God's word, or to listen to the Spirit of God, or to respond to the community of God. To the community of God, if your conscience is hard, and so we want to be careful with this. And again, I would refer you to all of the information that I have here in episode one hundred and thirteen: a practical perspective on decision-making. I have a one-hour webinar. I have a video short, 90 seconds or less. I have this podcast. I have a long-form article, 2,000 words, that is also in a podcast. I have a graphic here that you can look at that will help you to walk through this. Let me close this by saying a few things about the ditches that you want to stay out of, and then a couple of key ideas. Ditch number one is you don't want to be a stumbling block, and that's what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 8. You don't want to blow people off, and you have knowledge, but you don't want to be arrogant about it, so you don't want to be a stumbling block. But that is a ditch you don't want to fall into, but you don't want to go into the other ditch to where you cave to the fear of others, to where they have 100% control over your decision-making. And so you don't want to... Jewish slash Christian meat, non-meat eaters to uh, totally control you. And so you don't want to be a stumbling block to them, but you don't want to blow them off. And, and you don't want to cave to how they think. You want to strive to be like Jesus. There were times when Jesus offended people by his actions, though his heart was right with his father. That's what you want to do. Go and do likewise. Go and be likewise. You will offend people from time to time, but you want to have a heart for them. You want to have a heart that is right with God. So there's a balance here. It's a wisdom issue. I can't answer that. Your question specifically, I mean, you can go on our forums and ask, well, what about this? How should I respond in this situation? But you don't want to be a stumbling block, and you don't want to uh, blow people off as though they don't matter. Now, please know that you cannot please everyone, but you must genuinely love people and not dismiss them. And you must also live in the freedom God provides. It's a wisdom issue. One final key idea is that you'll never be 100, 100% in faith for all of your decisions. You, you won't be, if you're looking for perfect faith, I'm 100% sure now you could say that, but there's bigger decisions where you will have a residue of doubt, like getting married. And what you have to do is fall back on those moments where the pressure wasn't on. It wasn't two days before the wedding when now you're starting to doubt. It wasn't when you're sitting in front of the car dealer and you're signing the line and you're starting to doubt. You'll not have 100% faith in those moments, probably. But what you want to do is go back to those clearer moments, weeks, months before when you were making the decision. Were you in faith then? And so don't expect 100% faith. One final thing, here's what you can expect. Disappointment. Disappointment. 
And it's what I was saying at the beginning of this podcast. Are you in faith to get married? A great premarital counseling question. They say, yes, I'm in faith to get married. Then they launch out into marriage and they are disappointed. Being in faith for a decision doesn't mean that trouble's not going to happen. The text I'm thinking about is Matthew 14, verses 28 through 35. Peter answered the Lord and said, If it's you, command me to come on the water. Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Here's the best part right here. Jesus immediately. Love those two words. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith. That was the rebuke. That was the rebuke that Jesus gave Peter. It's about faith. You made a decision, and now you're weakened in your faith. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. That's Matthew 14, 28 through 35. Expect disappointment. Just because you made a decision in faith doesn't mean it's going to go, It's not going to go sideways. A little bit later, that's why it's so imperative. As Paul said, if you don't proceed from faith, it is sin. If you need help working through that, you have the canon, the comforter, the community, and the conscience. If you want to talk more about it, you can ask us too. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.